This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Jack Devine, who served as the CIA's Director of Operations and Associate Director of Operations in the mid-1990s, and who was involved with operations spanning from Charlie Wilson's War to Pablo Escobar to the Chilean coup in 1973. Devine will give his insight on the ongoing Russian aggression and what the latest developments mean, Alexei Navalny included. Also, I'll explore whether people who believe in QAnon and election fraud need to be taken seriously. And now, the Nexus. Jack Devine was the CIA's Acting Director of Operations and Associate Director of Operations from 1995 to 1996, and prior to that had spent three decades in the Central Intelligence Agency in charge of the agency's largest and most successful covert action operation, which drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. That sounds like Charlie Wilson's War, one of my very favorite movies. <laughs> he is the author of the book Spy Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression available for pre-order now and coming out March 1st. Jack Devine, welcome to the Nexus. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a great opportunity. There is so much going on with Russia right now. Let's start at the top. Alexei Navalny, the chief opposition leader in Russia, has been sentenced to two and a half years in a penal colony. This after more than 100,000 people took to the streets nationwide to protest Navalny's arrest, which happened when he returned from Germany, where he was convalescing after being poisoned by Russian security officials. Talk about cinematic. What is your take on all of this? Well, I think starting with Putin, and I actually have a chapter, it's called the uh, Spy Master President. And uh, the reason I, I say that is to understand Putin is to understand sort of his pedigree. And uh, I actually quote him as the entry to the chapter. It says, uh, there is no such thing as a former KGB officer. I know what he means, because I would say there's no such thing as a former CIA uh, officer, and what what he's getting at is the mindset. You know, how do you look at how do you look at the world? How do you evaluate uh, problems? And to overlook his upbringing in in, uh, in the KGB would miss an opportunity. So uh, I know we want to be crisp here today. I think the way he will be looking at the problem with Navalny, uh, and he's, I think Putin is a very good tactician. I'm not disagreement on his strategy for his own country, but we can talk about that separately. I think he has a real dilemma because this is a, a genuine crack. This is a real crack in the system. Large numbers of people, uh, they've grown up in the post-Cold War period. Many of the young people are the impetus behind this. Um, you know, they want a better life. They want, uh, they also want freedoms that they see in Western Europe and elsewhere. And uh, they're and I think the corruption issue is also resonating with him. So how he handles Navalny is uh, is going to require a lot of finesse because it is not Stalin's Russia. He can't just send them all to a gulag in the middle of the night and no one know about it. So this, and particularly in the age of technology, right? Everyone has cameras and they're even able to take pictures of his villa down on the, uh, in the, uh, the coast. So, um, so I think it's a very tricky problem. I think he has all the, 
all the wherewithal to stay in power, assuming he operates the way I think he will. But in this day and age, authoritarian, authoritarian governments and dictatorships are more vulnerable than ever in history because of technology, the ability for people to mobilize, spread information, and to get out on the street is uh, unparalleled. So mm. uh, it's hard. It's hard to crack down, with, and, and it's, it's done in plain sight. So I think the challenge is he can't just, as I said, do what Stalin did. So uh, I think he's more vulnerable. I think he goes on. I, I think he'll find some way to work his way out. It'll be a continuing and growing problem. But uh, I do not rule out the possibility that somewhere along the way it unravels quicker than any of us thought, such as how it came to an end in the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, I can I can understand that. I think um, what would be helpful also is for folks who have been following the story to an extent, at least from the protest end and the arrest and conviction. Can you give us a sketch on who Alexei Navalny is and why did he return to Russia and, and what are the dynamics of his situation? Well, um, you, you think clearer and maybe harder when someone tries to poison you, right? So, <laughs> I mean, I mean, he has clarity of thinking. I mean, he almost died. Uh, and, you know, to say he's royally annoyed would be an understatement. But he is a political animal at heart. I mean, he has, um, I mean, I think he's a genuine reformer. I mean, there are people that have that in their DNA. Um, and I think he took a calculated um, a calculated risk, but I, I would point out to him, and if it was my brother, listen, this is a real risk. It may be calculated, but this is a real risk going back. But I think he thought going back, the world would be watching him, the country would be watching him. As a political leader, they have to be, um, this is his calculus, I'm not saying it's food. They have to be very careful how they handle him because they will not want to turn him into a, a martyr and a bigger figure than he is. So, I think he thinks he can go back and uh, remain safe. Now, he received a, a two-year sentence, and he will go to prison. Um, does this have legs? How long do you sustain, how, do you, how long do you sustain up the uh, demonstrations and so on? So, I, I mean, I think going back to it, you're looking at the genuine thing. It makes him, therefore, more difficult to deal with. Whereas we've had just a straight politician that was a total pragmatist rather than someone that's a real believer, you know, you, you can kind of deal with them, but he, he's going to be hard to handle. He's just standing firm and a lot of people behind them. Uh, so I think Putin is going to be very careful. And I think he has been so far. I mean, he, on the other hand, Putin's end, he can't, you know, he's built a career of being a strong guy, Chechnya, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, going into Ukraine. I mean, he's he, tough guy. He cannot afford to be seen as, you know, a weak political figure as the last, the last hurrah in the Soviet Union was. So there's a, a, a tremendous, um, interplay here. And anyone who thinks they can predict it with certitude, I wish them, I wish them good luck. So I, it, but I personal gut feeling is this will play out. And become an increasingly more important problem for Putin, but not not a game-ending 
a moment here. And yeah. So I think, uh, but it's worth looking at and understanding that there's serious vulnerabilities in his in his system, and uh, they're not easily corrected. Hmm. It's it, it now. Is this all tied in? It, I, I guess what I wanted to look at is on a very macro level. I think a lot of people are genuinely concerned to say the least about all of the Russian aggression as part of the title of your new book um, is we are hearing headlines. We're hearing stories. Maybe we don't know exactly how to connect all the dots with them. You know, there's the cyber attack we heard about over Christmas time. We've heard about the bounties on us soldiers. Um, we, we obviously heard about the 2016 election. Is there a way you can, explain what is going on and is this is this something that is relatively new or is this a continuum from the big bad cold war days well uh, you're actually hitting on what i think is the main theme of the book which is the while the system has changed from a communist country into uh, an oligarchy authoritarian government without an ideology. The KGB was state in business. The uh, It's now called the SVR, FSB, uh, and the uh, military intelligence. They stayed in place. There was a period of time right there around uh, 1991 and the revolution. But even during that time, they kept their cases going. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting fellow who um, actually came to the CIA and uh, in uh, 2000, around that period of time, and then uh, publicly defected in 2004. He was the deputy chief of uh, the KGB office in, in New York, so very privy to, to their activities around the world, including New York. And he said, well, you know, when I joined the KGB, the top target was the U.S., the second target was China, the third was NATO. And when I left, it was the U.S., <laughs> China, and NATO. So they've been aggressive for a very, a very long time. Hmm. What's different? And I think, you know, we all now are students of 2016 and the great push they made to recruit people and to penetrate systems, uh, the, the DNC. But when you look, when I look back at it at that time, and this is for me a really critical point that I don't think has been developed well enough. People were excited about the fact that they penetrated the DNC. Um, but or that they were recruiting sources. What I found stunning and was a break from the Cold War is we had an understanding. Uh, there's two sets of Moscow rules. One is how do you behave in Moscow? Don't wear a Yankees baseball hat and meet clandestine operations, right? So it's tactical. But the other one is a really important one of policy level, and that is there was an understanding. It may not be written, but there was Moscow rules understanding, which was now, after the Stalin period, we did not interfere in internal Russian affairs. In other words, we fought them all around the world. They fought us, and they did not intervene in the United States in large measure. It's an understanding we don't fool around. So people are worried about, you know, they're trying to get into the campaign, but they had a bigger, this is a bigger, a bigger move than that. They are now playing around in our domestic political affairs. It's not just into an election, but using the internet to 
uh, radicalized and uh, um, disaffected people. So I think, you know, when, when I look at it, uh, you know, you ask whether it's new or old, their strategy as America being an adversary uh, is an old one. How they go about it with technology is new. And the other thing is they're in our, they're in our home land, in our home court now. And the question for the next administration, as it was for the last, is how are we going to confront this? How are we going to deal with this? You know, we have mutual destruction in nuclear weapons, but we now have nuclear destruction, or excuse me, destruction, uh, and uh, mutual destruction in cyber as well. And we don't have ground rules. And so there is a newness about this. And... Um, I don't think we're coming to terms with it right now. Uh, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm clear on that, but that's my main theme is the battle continues. It's just more sophisticated. It's in our home court. We better wake up. And what is their goal? I mean, it, it seems so simplistic to say that, but is it just to cause chaos or is it literally to erode our government within so that they can have this superiority? I mean, obviously in the Cold War, we always heard that they wanted to have military superiority and maybe, uh, you know, superiority in, in, in cultural terms and whatnot. But I, I just struggle sometimes to understand, are they just being troublemakers or is there an end goal here that we're not hearing about? Well, I think, um, I think I would, you know, when, when I, when I look at this, um, the, you know, when we look at communism, they're going to control the world, you know, but, you know, by the seventies, their whole, their whole philosophy that, you know, you met a KGB officer in her corner and said, yeah, communism. Well, you know, he was a, he was a, a government official, part of the elite. The system lost the ideology, right? So they have no vision of conquer. You don't conquer the world without, without a, without a message, right? <laughs> Russia has no message. There is no message, right? The right. communism had a message. It won that badly failed and it was, it was long, long gone. And that's why we had such an advantage over them over a long period of time. I actually think we should have a reset with Russia, that Russia should by nature be in the West and be part of the, the, the Western world. And I thought we and hoped that that's what would happen in, in the 90s. But you can't reset if Putin has a mindset, a Cold War mindset. So he's a younger man, but he has a Cold War mindset. He's executing a Cold War strategy. And that strategy is, you know, you confront, you sort of push back in everywhere in the world where your interests are at stake. And I don't think they're trying to elect, you know, uh, Trump, I mean, or, or um, like Biden. I, I think it's what they really want to do is keep us off balance. And they don't want a coup because a coup in this world or enough, you know, if the, the radicals that went and attacked the, the capital, I mean, if they had prevailed, which was, you know, an extremely remote possibility, but they don't want chaos in the United States because they want stability, but they want to weaken political system so and i think that's the game they were playing and with the dnc and with the recruitments targeting recruiting trying to recruit people that was old-fashioned intelligence to figure out they thought hillary was going to be the next president so they wanted to you know collect intelligence platforms when that didn't turn out they quickly shifted to try and get sources around around trump so i don't think this is like that's the theme of the book the continuing fight but 
it's not the old fight in the way that it's missing the ideology, and it also has much more powerful tools for disruption. Yeah. As, as we do. As we do, yeah. Um, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, we have a new U.S. president, Joe Biden, and uh, I think a lot is unclear at this moment as to how Biden is going to proceed. Obviously, by now... He has had his first phone call with Putin from all accounts. He was strong on the call, Joe Biden. Uh, he was, you know, standing up to Putin for certain things, talked about Navalny. But what do you see as his overarching strategy and the, obviously, the challenges he faces? But give me some sense of how you think Biden is going to go towards Russia. The problem when Donald Trump came in, no one knew where he was going because he didn't have a track record. He didn't have advisors because he didn't have he didn't have people that worked in the government. And it showed, unfortunately, to his detriment over the long haul, that he never really got a handle around the management of government, you know, and uh, and so on. Now, in the case of uh, Biden, I mean, you're, the government's being staffed with people that have worked in government. And they have a lot of experience on how the government functions in foreign relations. But they also all come from a different era. They come from the Clinton-Obama era, right? So you have a lot of people, very experienced and fairly predictable. So we're going to be going back and you know, we'll be trying to be nice to the Russians. And we're trying to bring the Europeans together. You know, we start the restart the START treaty, which I will tell you, I would have thought we should have gone into some serious negotiations before we did that. But so there's going to be an attempt to warm up relations around the world. I mean, I, I think that's the, the underlying sort of longstanding view of the folks that are coming in. And it's a long tradition of the Democratic Party. So I think the problem, and I go back to it, it takes two to tango. Right? So you can be nice and trying to deals. But if the other side is working off a different agenda, you are then driven to a different position. And I yeah. think what's going to happen with uh, the Biden administration, the best intentions inside, unless Putin is looking for a genuine reset, which means a change of behavior in a lot of different places in Ukraine, I don't think it's going to happen. It won't look much different than it's looked for the last 25 years, our relationship with Russia. There will be sanctions, will be problems. And, you know, uh, we'll have to be ready if he tries to do more dramatic things in Ukraine. So I'm not expecting big change in in our our, our relationships. Um, and I think from my years in you know in the government and in the foreign policy intelligence world, you know we think we can mold the whole world, right? but sometimes the world molds us. Right. So we're we're, we're sort of we we look at what can an administration do. Um, you know, they're often limited by the realities of the world. That's so. I think they'll, they'll be professional. They'll try to have a positive relationship. But the bigger, what did Tip O'Neill once say? All politics are local, right? Right. So we have to, we have to know what what's going to happen in the Russian. What's the Russian equation? You know, before we can figure out. I mean, we we need to realize that there's a Russian equation. So our best moves are going to be evaluated in the context of their own interests. The same thing is true with Iran. You know, we want to deal. Worst thing to tell the Iran is you want to deal. Try and buy a rug in, in Iran. They're the best negotiators, you know. So, you know, and I, I've done that. So, 
you know, we're going to try and, uh, you know, make things better. But uh, again, everyone can be enthusiastic about this. We can all be hopeful, but I'm just saying be prepared for realities. And we have a tough world we live in. And it's going to take a really smart uh, leadership and all our institutions uh, to deal with it. I mean, Russia's one, you know, a major problem because they're playing in our country. The Chinese are much more military economic problem, but they are not playing as vigorously in our home court, trying to calibrate it so it doesn't undermine business. So we've got many, many problems around the world. So you well, know, we need, I'm a, I'm a real politic guy. <laughs> you know, what, what, what can we, uh, when we go out there, uh, we have to really understand the other guy's game. And that's why intelligence is important. Of course. No, no question about it. But obviously, we have some very tangible things that need to be addressed immediately. I mean, I, take the cyber attack, for example. I mean, that I, I still don't think we understand why that happened. We still don't understand if the Trump administration knew about it or they were so incompetent that it happened and they didn't even understand or process what Russia was doing. On a basis like that, does do you think Biden will be aggressive in countering cyber attacks? And even more importantly, from an intelligence standpoint, do we have the capacity to stop the Russians? Or are we just going to have to expect that they're going to keep attacking us and and there's there's no end in sight? Well, you have a couple of really good questions there, Art. I mean, the first... Uh, I think the first point is what we saw in that attack should be troubling to everybody. But from my perspective, and my working proposition is that you're looking at the tip of the iceberg. Oh. That they would be that they would be using intelligence platforms to penetrate all our key uh, institutions. Uh, uh, should not be not be surprising um, and. The fact that they allowed themselves to do it in a way that surfaced uh, shows a level of aggressiveness that they were more careful. In, in, and during the election, too, the, the way they went about it was, was uh, you know, it was, uh, well, it was discovered, right? I mean, it was very visible. So there's an aggressive, aggressive part here. But I think their ability to get deep into our system far exceeds what we're looking at now. I would hope, uh, based on our experience over the years, the U.S. has been a you know a, a cutting edge of technology and 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 in, uh, and in the cyber area and the cyber command. I mean, there's, you know, there's frightening capabilities there. So I'm I'm not worried that if we decided we were going to go toe to toe on cyber, uh, and we could really mess up each country in the world doing it. Um, um, but that I, I think we would, would would prevail. But there's a fundamental question I got at the beginning of this, and that is, where's the policy? I mean, what do we have an agreement? Now, they don't want to agree. We're stuck, right? But they've attacked us now. You're sitting in the White House, and, and the question is, now what do I do? All right. Do I throw uh, a tomahawk out across the desert and hope it hits something? And that's the show of reaction. I think we really need to find a way. And it can't be done at some conference with 700 people because of the nature of the, the, of cyber. It's, it's, it has to be a clandestine, 
sub rosa, as you used to say, below the rose where you, you know, you'd work out a deal. So the question, the question becomes, can we have rules of the road? And it's not some document. It's sit in the back room and say, look, I mean, you know, we are going to, we are going to right now look at uh, Putin's situation, Navalny. If we were screwing around inside Russia, like they were screwing around the United States, you know, we don't need, we don't want an unstable Russia and they shouldn't have us in there, but they need to understand it can't be a one way street. Now, when coming back to the point, you know, it's, if, if one does it, the other one responds, you need to sit down and really negotiate. And I believe in diplomacy, but this is one that has to be done in the back room. We need Moscow rules. We need Beijing rules, you know. And we need to figure out how are we going to do business. We have a capability. You have a capability. For example, when, when during the Cold War, we never counterfeited each other's money. Why? Because to destroy the economic system of the world. And it was an understanding. It's not Article 4 of our agreement. So that's, you know, your questions are really fundamental. One that I think people are, you know, looking in the weeds at the at the problem and say, well, this happened. But there, someone needs to stand back and say, okay, great. Now what? We're, how do we manage this in the new world we live in? Well, I think, and, and I haven't seen much. I haven't seen much on this, Art. Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit on a great point just now. Is that it seems like in the Cold War there were rules, there was an understanding, there was. You just mentioned about how we didn't counterfeit each other's uh, currency, and we didn't meddle in each other's domestic politics. But obviously, Russia is breaking those rules in a big way. Uh, I don't know if it's just because of the technology exists now for them to do so that they didn't have 40 or 60 years ago, or if it's a sense that there is just something more base, more inhuman, perhaps, about the Russian system of government uh, that isn't capable of playing by rules. And so I sometimes wonder, is... uh, the United States playing on a field that doesn't exist anymore in that there is no, there are no rules. There's, there's no decency. Is that possible? Well, that's, that's a, 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 a philosophical, perhaps even a theological um, uh, discussion. Earlier today, someone asked me, what's the difference in you know, the intelligence world today than in my time? And I would say, you know, Understanding the other side, getting sources, how you go about it, how do you test your info? Nothing's changed. The real change is technology, and it's astronomical, seismic change. There was a way I did business. I was telling someone in in the old days in Russia, I had signs, you know, here's $10, put up a sign down with Russia and Afghanistan. Today, you and I can sit in our office and rally 20,000 people in a place to, to stir up trouble. The potential, people are having trouble, the intelligence people, I think, sitting, look at all the potential. I, I can wreak havoc here. And you know, I think the, each country is, is, you know, looking at it themselves and trying to figure out, you know, how much of it do I use? Now, Putin's a tough guy. He's got away with it. And he said, oh, I'm going to use more than everybody else. And, you know, they have a what they call the hybrid warfare. I don't know if I'm sure you've heard of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, today's warfare involves psychological warfare, cyber, and you weaken the other enemy, not by necessarily uh, bombing him. So um, the, the point is, 
you know, we have, there is not even, it's not, it's, we are, have chosen not to use the full power of the United States. We are more restrained. It's the one, if you looked at Trump, he was less restrained, but there's so much more that we could do if we wanted to. So part of democracy and part of uh, civilized um, behavior, my part, is how do you control your power? But if the other side isn't using it and they stick you, there's nothing in your eye. You know, you got to stick it back or they're going to stick both fingers in your eyes. But the only way you get around that is by having discourse, discussion. And and and, and again, um, you know, I, I would urge the people responsible around the world to find ways to start addressing this problem. Everybody wants a big conference where 200 people show up, right? They have an agreement. I think there is one actually with China that they signed in the Obama administration and it came out and I said, you know, this is totally useless document. <laughs> the fact that it's out in the public, it just tells you they're not going to say, oh, who, who's going to say they're doing it? Every country now Little country on the face of the earth now has tremendous intelligence capabilities that weren't conceived of, not conceived of 25 years ago. And there are no ground rules. So they're coming back to your philosophical point. You know, how do we, how do we deal with this? And, uh, I think in many ways the world is structured around, uh, current activities. In other words, tactical current things. This happened. I'm going to respond this way. That happened. You know, they used to have a great office in CI called Strategic Intelligence. And part of it was to look at the big pictures. They still produce big papers. But I would say most of the intelligence world, all services, are current newspapers. I mean, and no offense, this is a very thoughtful show. But many, many programs are, you know, let's hit the subject of today and let's just hit that one event and not try to make sense out of it. You're clearly a guy that makes sense out of things. So... I, I think we do have, you know, not to take it too far, but we have chaos in cyber, the cyber era. And it's left up to an individual leader to decide how much of that power he's going to use. And democratic systems tend to want to consult, and rightfully so, with Congress and everything else. So there is some handicap there. Um, but I think over the long run, you're much better off if you have consensus behind you instead of the one leader staking out a position. Yeah, that, that makes tremendous sense. And I have to ask, though, uh, the $64,000 question in, in many ways. I know, I know people have wondered this for, for four to five or many more years is, in your opinion, was President Donald Trump a Russian asset for any of the last 40 years, as we've been hearing in news reports lately? I was asked that. I think it was quoted in the Atlantic Monthly when he was first elected. It was something about, is Donald Trump an agent of the, the Russians? And uh, so I stood back and said, well, let me think. Or how good are we? And all around the world, all the great intelligence operators that ever lived, did they ever recruit the president of a nation state? I can't think of one. So then I remember uh, Marcus Wolf was the head of, uh, you know, if you, may, you don't know him, at least you've heard about him in the sense that he was head of the East German service and he had the Casanovas and the uh, Sparrows and real dark operations. He had 100,000 agents in East, East German alone, right? He's Carla in, in like Hooray's. Uh, like Grace book and, and certain when he said you, you know he, in late life he said you know I'm really sorry I recruited the chief of staff to Willie Brown because it brought hell down upon us when it was discovered 
my point, Art, is that it would be unprecedented, unprecedented that in the intelligence world would be good enough to recruit him. The other thing that I, I would say is that there's a, there is a mystery to conundrum in the Trump experience of the Russians, and that is, you know, during the last administration, there was a non-lethal response when Russia would enter the Ukraine. Right. When Trump came in, he started with javelins in, <laughs> sanctions. And as far as I know, most discussions I've had suggested, you know, he, he did a lot of tough things. But his behavior, like Helsinki, just stunned me. It was like, you know, what is this? And I think where I come down, is not an agent, but there, there, there is a character aspect of them that's hard to get our head around. And that is, his ego is so powerful that the idea that anyone would think that the Russians uh, helped him win the election, he didn't win it all by themselves, he just fixated, as somebody would with any type of <laughs> psychological issue on this point, and he just said things that were inconsistent with the positions that he was taking and dealing with the Russians. So I don't think you have, I don't think he's an agent. I know there's a book out now. I, I've read some of the reviews and, you know, if you want to sell a book, you know, I'm trying to be objective. No, that's, let me back off. That's, if you want to sell a book, you, you, you come up with a stark statement like the president of the United States is a spy. Now, <laughs> on the program, the Americans, you see that, right? But I'm just telling you real life, you know, I'd, li- I'd like to program the Americans, a lot of good technical, good stuff in it. But, you know, <laughs> that isn't how the intelligence world works. I mean, the, the Russians, the Russians, their best operations were people that they, they would actually walk in because they were disaffected. Uh, they thought they were not being treated well enough in their own system, but and likewise. So uh, it's a it's a long walk, and uh, he did it to his own disadvantage. Frankly, I, I saw no gain. I saw no personal gain in staking out the position he did, uh, and it's totally inconsistent with the behavior in terms of how they conducted their policies against the Russians over the last four years. So. The only thing I can tie it to is not that there, there was some some guy recruited them or they, they've got a bank loan that they're going to lean on. And it just doesn't happen in the real world. And uh, yeah. I'm waiting for somebody. I'm waiting for somebody, anybody in the intelligence world to tell me, yeah, I, I was part of a case. I, I remember a case where we recruited the president of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm it, certainly in your dream. I'm not an intelligence analyst and I'm certainly not qualified in that arena whatsoever. But what I will say is that it does seem to be consistent with all that you've been hearing about Trump for years, that he is just easily flattered and loves when people cozy up to him and, and uh, are bootlickers and whatever analogy you want to use. And the Russians, like other nations played that to the hilt and, uh, got him to do some of their bidding. But as you note, he didn't do all of their bidding. I mean, he was, he did impose sanctions and, and whatnot. So the, the picture is a bit more nuanced than you know, that there was this Manchurian candidate moment. And, and since then he's <laughs> under someone's spell. I like that analogy of the Manchurian candidate. I'm just thinking how hard it would be if he was my agent. <laughs> I mean, you're, Donald Trump is your agent. What? How are you going to handle it, right? So the first thing you want to do 
is you don't want to look like you're his buddy, right? So the first thing you do is look like we have a strain with this guy, right? If you actually have the president, you'd, that isn't your behavior. It's totally inconsistent with good agent handling, right? And so uh, the idea that, that, you know, what do you do with them after he's your agent? I mean, it surely isn't making pronouncements. I mean, you would get him, you know, you, you wouldn't have him pull out of the start treaty. And you'd have him do, be in the treaty and do something that favored your your statistics in the system, right? You, you, you make sure oh, we'll lower the number of rockets we have. So my point is, it'll be a nightmare to handle to handle the head of the state, uh, and particularly in a competitor. And if you got caught, this is what Mark is, well, if you get caught, mm. uh, you know, think of the world we live in. If I were Putin, I said, God, whatever, how are we, how we going to handle this? What happens? Our country will, will be, it's not sanctioned. If, we, if the president is our agent, you know, all hell's going to break loose. So I, I think if people go beyond, like, sort of the, the, the moment and they're, they're upset with what he said at this or that or the other, and you start to think back about what are the realities of espionage and influence and the real pragmatic problems and challenges you face. No, I think it really stemmed from something deep inside of him about he could not accept the fact that the Russians could contribute. I don't think they made a, a difference, but they clearly were screwing around in the election. Right. Yeah. No, no question about that. Um, I have to ask uh, another question, which I think would be on listeners' minds based on the introduction that I read. Uh, was Charlie Wilson's War accurate as a book in motion picture? Or if not, what was different in reality? Yeah, there must be mental telepathy because I'm sitting here saying, I'm going to ask Bart if he'll just ask me that question he did at the beginning to see how the guy's truth. And the reason it's so important is, uh, Charlie Wilson and I had dinner at Sparks restaurant in New York. And if you know anything about Sparks, that's where the mafia Don Castellano gets shot. And I do and know. Stuff, right? so, so if it's Charlie, Charlie wants some drama, right? Everything about drama. And he was a very substantive guy. I mean, they've made fun of him in a lot of places, but it makes a mis- you're, you make a mistake if you try uh, to deal substantively with Charlie. Naples graduate, serious guy. Walked in the wild side, and he 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 self-pronounced that he did, so there's nothing. So he reaches across the dinner, and he says, Jack, you know, you didn't like the book. You're going to hate the movie. So <laughs> the, the, the reason he said it, and I, I what do you do? I laugh because he knows I, I'm, I'm very uh, upset about it. I mean, I, I like Charlie and I, I found him to be very helpful to the cause. But he knows very well, as, and I, I ran it. I was there when the Stingers went. And he knows he had nothing to do with the Stinger. Right? And the problem is it was a U.S. government authorized program with government folks you know, public servants, a lot of people working hard, Congress approving money in a bipartisan way, president behind it, a couple foreign allies supporting it, logistics getting uh, weapons and so on moved around the world. It wasn't it wasn't a congressman running around with Julie Roberts out in the middle of you know Afghanistan running the program. It was truly a government program. And my concern is, I, I don't want American people or students of how intelligence and covert action work to think that that's how you do it. You know, it's right. really your government. But if you want to make a movie about that, a hundred people like me, 
dead, dead boring, right? There's no bizarre, bizarre to it. So I, I, I think it, you know, it's hard not to say. I, uh, Charlie was uh, delighted to have known him, um, and I think he was a real patriot. But his impact on the program, he did provide money, and he was a good face out around the world, uh, pushing it hard. But I can tell you maybe five times in the two years that I was running that program that he ever called and said, Jack, where, where are the weapons going? What weapons and how many? We never had those types of discussions that are somebody that has their hands around them. So he called me once. He wanted to know why I switched the equation between the weapons we were buying from the Chinese and the weapons we were buying from Pakistan. I can tell you this because it's in the public record. And um, I said, Charlie, the reason is, and I explained the reason. Okay, got it. <laughs> and so, and he was friends with, uh, I mean, with the Egyptians at the time, Pakistan Egyptians and the Chinese. So he really had... He was a symbolic um, a guy who was fought hard down on the hill. But if it wasn't him, someone else would have been designated the job. And he once told me, I said, how did he get on? He said, well, Speaker of the House Wright told me that was my job. He was a Texas guy. And I, he knew I was hot on it. And so that's how I became the Afghanistan guy. But someone else would have done it. The Congress wanted a, a player in it. So, you know, I don't mind that it's called Charlie Wilson's War unless someone wants to sit down and say, how am I going to do the next one? And right. God forbid, all the Congress, no Congress is going to like what I'm about. Don't call a congressman and, and a socialite in New York or, or New York or Texas and think you're going to run a covert action for me. You better get down the hill and get a couple billion dollars and get the President of the United States and the American people behind you. So that's a long answer, but I'm so glad you asked it. No, no, I mean, and I, you know, and I, and it's not, I, I obviously know it's not all. Charlie Wilson, by any means, um, in the equation, I just think what a tremendous accomplishment that must be and is for you as a uh, a career intelligence officer. I mean, it's from my vantage point, I feel like that is one of the times that the United States really prevailed and really did a, a, a great service to the world and and really um dispelled a threat from a country and i will tie back into the movie for a moment that it is i i remember at the end where they they seem to make the connection that you know our neglect in afghanistan after the fact um led to the turmoil of september 11th and and beyond um do you do you share that that belief at all or is it more complicated than that let me do three quick comments. One, it is the point in my 32 years where I felt I had the most impact was in that moment of time in the Afghan program. But a cable went out after after the departure of the Russians, and the cable said, we won. And um, we is the real operative word. It wasn't Charlie Wilson. It wasn't Jack Devine. It wasn't no Beard. You know, hundreds of people, funny, funny people, you know, mule guys that do how to uh, do saddles for mules. And I mean, there were just incredible people that were involved. So it's not an individual. On the last point, it's really interesting because Charlie and I were of the view that we should stay in Afghan program. And I was developing a budget and we'd be building well, uh, wells and this and that and the other. 
And I was disappointed when we didn't because some of the experts said, look, you know, there's a history there. We want to get out. But I will tell you this, uh, uh, you know, like Charlie, I thought that way at the time, but as years have gone by, I really think I was wrong. And I think Charlie was wrong. We really, you know, nation building, staying behind would not have made a bit of difference. Hmm. Um, you know, you can't force feed some of these things. And as, uh, one of the reasons that I was fully supportive of the covert effort to go in uh, to Afghanistan and take the Taliban down, but I had great reservations about putting our military in because of the, you know, countries have to want it. And while from a humanitarian point of view, they ought to be helped, and that ought to be done by humanitarian organizations. But if you're going to do covert action, you're going to get in there and you're going to change, try and change history. You have to know, in, in Good Hunting, my earlier book, I talk about what are the conditions under which you go and undertake action of any any sort. And one of them is you have to have a realistic uh, prospect of success. There, these are uh, 13th century philosophical arguments for addressed war. You know, you, you need you know you need to have a legitimate enemy. You need to reduce the odds. You have to have a chance of success. Explored all other possibilities, so I can run them off. I added a couple of Jack the Vines. You need bipartisan support, a lot of money, and uh, allies. But so I, I think on that point, I was emotionally and intellectually in line with Charlie on staying, but. I, I think today uh, that was that certainly wasn't the role for, for the CIA, and I, I think they were destined today. I mean, if you want to be pessimistic, you know what happens after we leave. I'm afraid after all of our well building and all the things I would have done multiplied by by a thousand. When we leave Afghanistan, we leave Iraq. It's uh, you know it's hard to imagine that, that it'll end up in a um, modern democratic society, either country. Right. I mean, that's, that's also a, a belief that I hold. I think that there are certain places in the globe that are just not cut out for democracies and they're just going to go the way they go. And, and we can only delay things probably is, is the best way to look at it. And, uh, uh, of course, that's a question for others as to whether we should stay purposely and permanently in in certain locations. But, you know, I, I definitely take your point about not nation I, building. Not, the only point that I would make there, which I agree with everything you said there, which is one point is it's up to the country to decide. In other words, it's not that they're predestined to be uh, – non-democratic right but they have to want it enough they have to have reached a point in their own political and economic situation where they say we want it we're willing to go do what it takes to become a democratic state and it's not trivial usually it means great personal sacrifice so i'm not ruling off afghanistan but at the time when i looked at it it was very tribal there was no indication that anybody really gave a hoot about democracy and an election ballot right <laughs> so I, I i'm not i don't mean to predestine people and i don't want to leave that impression i'm just saying it's not ours to go to the people so look you gotta be a democrat you gotta get out there and vote and, and so on it's you they have to reach it in, in, in the development of their society and culture and we can only do so much yeah. i think we're better off Focusing and prioritizing and, and working, and I think we start. It starts at home, making sure we got a 
going to your earlier point about how do we fend off uh, opponents, and that is to make sure we've got a strong system here at home. We need some work on it. I have one more question, um, if if I may, and I, it's it's one that's been on my mind for for a while. Just as an American citizen, is do you think there will ever come a day when it is safe to travel to Russia again, like in the twenty years or so after the Soviet Union ended, or is there always going to be this this problem of suspicion and and you know? problems with I think what I think Russia should be part if you know if, I, if someone would divine me to be a Russian leader I would say look why don't we give in the West it's a better deal economic growth you know uh, to me democracy is a winner you think you need to buy into it so when we talk about Navalny what's going on in Russia uh, it's a risky road for for uh, Putin but you know, uh, he's either going to crack down or maybe he changes his tune a little bit and recalibrate. So I want to be optimistic and that maybe the crisis we're confronting today can lead to uh, a path forward where we have the relationship I think we should have with Russia. I see no reason why we need to be adversaries with them, honestly. So yeah, culturally, Militarily, a lot of reasons to be together. And I think when you're looking to China, it would be better that they weren't aligned. You know? So I'm, you know, I would hope in the next couple of years that uh, one way or the other, the Putin regime uh, either modifies its system or that, you know, they go through a painful period and, and end up with uh, some new formation, which I would not wish on any country. So, um, but this is we're in dangerous he's in dangerous water now. Yeah. I mean that there's that's becoming clear and it'll be exciting to uh follow this over the next six months to a year, no question about that. Well, Jack Devine is the author of the book Spymaster's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression, which I have been reading, and it is a great read. It is available for pre-order now, and it is coming out everywhere March 1st. I thank you, Mr. Devine, for joining me in the Nexus today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure and great questions, sir. Thank you. And we will be right back. If you repeat something enough, can it become accepted truth? Can a belief incessantly stated become something everyone has to at least tolerate? How many people have to repeat the same belief in order for it to be a force to be reckoned with? These are questions I've been thinking about a lot lately. A funny thing is happening in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Those who said Joe Biden won due to election fraud aren't changing their minds or accepting the truth. In one highly respected survey in the last week or so, 72% of Republicans said Biden won because of fraud. This despite more than 50 court cases that say there was no fraud or election improprieties. These believers are remaining steadfast and not changing their minds. Should they? Must they? In most circumstances, you would probably say people have a right to their beliefs. After all, this is what we say about religion. People certainly disagree with my Catholic beliefs, and many of them don't square with scientific doctrine. I still believe them, and so do more than a billion people worldwide. 
But the idea that this election was stolen from Donald Trump due to fraud on behalf of Joe Biden is now having deadly consequences. This past week, I was reflecting on how far out of control this shared belief has gone when I watched the live coverage of Capitol Hill police officer Brian Sicknick lying in honor at the Capitol Rotunda for trying to fight off the mob who killed him. That's 72% of Republicans who think the election was stolen translate to roughly 40% of all Americans. And they keep repeating this ad nauseum. Do we, meaning those who don't believe there was fraud, have to listen to them? Is this what tolerance and inclusion mean? What about those who believe in QAnon, which seemed laughably absurd and histrionic about a year ago, but doesn't seem so funny now when a woman who believes in this disturbing theory has gotten elected to Congress. Do we have to tolerate the QAnon caucus? Is there a right and wrong? It's highly alarming, that's for sure. Mitch McConnell, right before the Capitol was stormed on January 6th, spoke eloquently about the need for Americans to not live in parallel realities and to not have separate sets of facts. But what happens when diehard Trump supporters and far-right Americans adamantly believe in what can objectively be called the lies? Does humanistic kindness come into play and we in the truth-based world pat them on the head and say, I respect your beliefs? There is no easy answer here, but I'm not ready to say QAnon is a religion yet, or that Trump followers have a religion either. Scientology claims to be a religion, but I subscribe to the term Time Magazine used for them 30 years ago, the cult of greed. Cults are among us, and it doesn't matter if there are 74 people in the group or 74 million. I find people who are deep into the election fraud or QAnon thought process saying out loud, 74 million can't be a cult. We're too big. Big, yes, but too big to be considered a cult? I don't think all cults need to be small to exist. I think I could definitively say there is truth and there is fiction. Is my religion fiction? Parts of it certainly are. The earth wasn't created in a week, for one thing. Jesus Christ likely didn't come back from the dead on the third day. However, in symbolic terms, I believe most of it. The days the earth was created could stand for millions of years. I categorically believe Jesus existed and preached across the Middle East and formed a religion with Apostle Peter that became the original Catholic Church. I think these things can be proven. I am okay if others don't think he is the Son of God, and I don't expect that to be accepted by everyone. So the bottom line is, if something can be proven, we should and must tolerate it. There was no election fraud. There was no global pedophile cabal or someone named Q or whatever the hell these wackos claim. These people can repeat themselves over and over, but no, it will never become accepted truth. And I have no problem being intolerant on that. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide and give us a review. We will see you next time and be well.